Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, we said a few weeks ago that in this opening chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about the doctrine of election. And we said that actually, properly understood, that is a doctrine that is filled with pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort. And someone might ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm numbered among the elect? Well, there is another doctrine that corresponds with that, and it's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, you'll know if you're among the elect if the saints persevere to the end. And as I look out over this group this morning, I can see that the elect showed up. You are the ones that persevered in spite of the time change and have arrived. So, fear not for your salvation, at least for today. We are in Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. And um, this is a continuation of the introduction to this letter to the Ephesians. Um, Paul doesn't actually begin the letter proper, I would say, until we get to the second chapter. Uh, remember that when these letters were written, there were no such things as chapter divisions. Those were things that were put in in the Middle Ages to make it easier for us to navigate our way through these letters and through the Gospels. But initially, there were no chapter divisions. You wouldn't expect to find chapter divisions in a letter. Um, so Paul really doesn't begin until we get to the second chapter. But let's go ahead and read through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's point here, of course, is that Christ is preeminent. Christ is preeminent, he says, above all things. And if you think about it, that is exceedingly good news for us. Um, my own experience has been that much of the Christian preaching that you hear these days focuses either on the grounding of our hope in the past. The emphasis is upon the work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. The most of the sermons that you hear will focus on that, what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf on the cross 2,000 years ago. In fact, if someone were to ask you the question, when were you saved? Somebody might answer, well, I was saved, you know, 
December 3rd, 1972, referring to a, a particular conversion experience. Of course, the proper answer to that is, when was I saved? I was saved 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Calvary when Jesus Christ offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for my sins. And, and it's true, most of our preaching is on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and properly so. How does the old hymn put it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So rightly so. Paul himself said, when I came among you, I sought to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So a lot of our preaching focuses either on our past hope or our future glory, if you think about it. Uh, what awaits us when we die? We think about the hope of heaven. Now, it's interesting. I was just at the diocesan convention, and the Reverend Dr. Kendall Harmon, uh, who is the canon theologian for the diocese, did a presentation on heaven, which was a little ironic when you consider the fact that uh, Kendall Harmon did his PhD at Oxford on hell. And he literally, uh, he did. He wrote his PhD on hell, his dissertation. And here he was teaching a class on heaven. And he asserted that the problem was just the opposite. We place all of our emphasis on this life to the exclusion of the life to come. We don't think about that. Um, I wasn't about to stand up and dispute Kendall Harmon in the middle of his own presentation, but I'm not entirely sure that that's true. It may be true that we don't hear a lot of sermons about heaven that are dedicated specifically to that subject, but we do talk a great deal about the hope that we have when we die. Uh, if you were here on just a few weeks ago when I preached on the transfiguration, that's one of the points that I brought out. I said that when Peter was facing the prospect of his own martyrdom in Rome, when he was chained up and he was about to be taken out and, and crucified on a road outside of Rome, the thing that he did in order to draw strength was he harked back, you'll recall, to that moment on the mountain. Now, that's quite extraordinary when you consider all of the things that Peter had experienced. I said Peter had been a witness to the resurrection. He had been there on that first Easter. In fact, Jesus appeared to Peter alone on Easter before he appeared to the other disciples. Uh, Peter had been there on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had come with great power upon the church. And it was Peter who stood up and delivered that remarkable sermon in which 3,000 people were converted in one hearing. Peter had been there when Jesus had walked on the water, when he'd calmed the storms, when he'd calmed the lepers, when he'd raised people from the dead. And yet when the chips were down and Peter was facing the prospect of his own death, he harked back to that moment on the mountain. And if you recall the sermon, you'll remember that I said the reason for that was because there he had tasted of the glory to come. He had entered into that cloud, which was the Shekinah glory of God. And he got just a taste, just a little taste of what heaven was going to be like. And so when he was facing the prospect of his own death, of course he harked back to that moment because he knew he was about to partake of that fully. I find that that's, that's true of most people in the pews. They want to hear the gospel. They want to embrace Jesus Christ because when they die, they want to go where? Heaven. Nobody wants to go to the other place. As I've said, nobody even wants to explore it out of a sense of curiosity. We want to go to heaven when we die. And we're putting all of our hope there. And so a lot of our sermons focus on the past grounding of our hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Good Friday and Easter, and rightly so. And we look forward to the hope of glory. But sometimes... At least this has been my experience when it comes to those in-between years. <laughs> We're just muddling 
through. We're just doing the best we can, biding our time until we escape. And I think this is oftentimes true, particularly in evangelical circles. Sometimes the focus is so much on our future hope that we neglect the present reality. I think this is one of the reasons why oftentimes conservative Christians don't pay any attention to the created order. You know, oftentimes we think it's the liberals who are concerned with, 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 the, with ecology, that are concerned with the, with the world around us and the, and the preserving of the natural order, and we're not particularly worried about that thing. We're not worried about that sort of thing because we have this tendency to think that we're going to live for this life, we're going to go to heaven when we die, and God is going to take this world and he's just going to throw it into the trash bin, so what do we care? But actually, that is not the biblical picture. As a matter of fact, here's, here's a shock for you on Sunday morning. How many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you realize that's not your final destination? Heaven is not the final stop. So if you think heaven's the final stop, you're not taking the train the whole way. The biblical picture is not heaven as the final stop. We die, we leave this earth, and that's the end of it. We go to be with, with the Lord in heaven, where there are streets of gold and gates of pearl and that sort of thing. No, the biblical picture is a new heaven and a new earth. The biblical picture, and you can read about it in the book of Revelation, is that God is going to take this broken and fallen world and he's going to remake it. God had a plan in creation, and that plan was to create man, and man was to be his regent over the created order. You know, the Apostle Paul says, all of creation moans as in travail, longing for redemption. The very creation moans as in labor pains, longing to be redeemed. Well, why is that? Because man, who is God's regent over the created order, has failed in his task. Bishop N.T. Wright wrote a wonderful book about this called Surprised by Hope. And in that book, he makes the point that what God is in the process of doing in the person of Jesus Christ is getting the Adam project that got off the rails back there in Genesis back on the rails. And he's done that how? By calling a particular people to himself. He calls a particular man Abraham. Through that particular man, he calls a particular people, a particular nation, Israel. Through that particular nation, he calls a particular Savior, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, he calls a new Israel, the church. And it is through the church that God is in the process of putting back right what went wrong. And one day, one day, God's plans are not going to be thwarted. He is going to redo this entire world. In the meantime, you and I may die and go to be with the Lord, but that's not our ultimate destination. Our ultimate destination is a new heaven, a new earth, creation regained. That's the biblical picture. You see, it's so much grander than just, I'm going to get my ticket punch and get out of here when I die. It's much bigger than that. It's much grander than that. That's the biblical picture. So the question is, what happens in the meantime? We've got this hope, this guarantee that is ours by the shed blood of Christ. We have the hope of glory, a new heaven, a new earth. But what about in the meantime? Well, that's what Paul is talking about here in this first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul is saying that the hope that we have as Christians is not just a past event, it's not just a future experience, it is a present reality. It is a present 
reality. Let me read these words to you again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We said a few weeks ago that one of the things that Paul was praying for, that these Ephesians might know him. Not merely know about him, but know him personally and grow in their knowledge of him. But not just that they may know him, but that they may, look at verse 18, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the future. But here's the present. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Are you aware of the fact that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day. We're, we're in Lent. We're approaching the season of Easter. And one of the things that I hope to do on Easter is, um, while making reference to our hope, the hope that we have in Easter, of course, that's what the resurrection is all about. What I really want to do is I want to challenge people to ask themselves, do they really believe it? I mean, I know we show up on Easter Sunday and we sing the hymns and we go through the motions and we go home and we have a wonderful meal and then Monday comes around and we go back to work. Here's my question to you. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe, not that the Spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples, do you really believe that physically, bodily, a man who was dead came back to life? Now, that's the question. Don't answer it today. You can answer it on Easter, because that's when I'm going to pose the question. But that is the question, if you think about it, isn't it? Did he really come back to life? And if he did, then what? Anything's possible, isn't it? You know, they always say in, in the introduction to the Star Trek series, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Well, there's only one person that's ever boldly gone there and come back again to tell the tale, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, if God can raise somebody from the dead, somebody who was dead and in the grave for three days, and he came out physically, bodily, alive again, then what? Anything is possible. And what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians is that that same power that brought Jesus back to life again is available to us. You know, oftentimes people will say, if I could just see somebody raised from the dead, I could believe. You know, if God would do that, of course Peter, James, and John, and Thomas believed. They saw it happen. But if I could see something like that, oh my goodness, I would believe too. You ever feel that way? You know, they had a decided advantage over us, didn't they? But the New Testament actually says there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over somebody physically coming back from the grave. The real miracle, the real miracle is not that God can raise somebody physically from the dead. If God can create the universe by the sheer power of his name, let's face it, folks, resurrections are small potatoes. 
The real miracle is that God can take somebody and turn their life around so that they are hardly recognizable. Now that's a miracle. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste and a picture of that. What God did with him physically, he will one day do with us. But what God did with him physically, he can do with us spiritually. And that's Paul's message to us here in this section of Ephesians. Yes, our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Yes, we have the hope of glory. But we also have, right here in our present struggles, whatever we are dealing with, a power that is available to us, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a resurrection power. It is a power that, of course, can give life to our mortal bodies, and we look forward to that. One of the great prayers in the prayer book is in the burial office. On page 484, we have this prayer. Listen to it. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He that raised up Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in us. Wherefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. That's part of the committal service. And it refers to the fact that the same one who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. But here's the important part. It's not just in the future. Christ can give life to our mortal bodies here and now. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. This is not just what Paul says here in Ephesians. He says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 8, that wonderful section about the hope that we have. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is this resurrection power that is available to us? Well, as I've already suggested to you, it is the power to change. It is the power to change. You want to change? Would you like to be better than you are? How many of you would like to be better than you are? A better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better citizen, a better Christian? And perhaps you've tried and it hasn't worked out all that well for you. And you're wondering to yourself, how do you do that? Paul is telling us there is a power that is available to us, a power that will give life in the future, but in the present to our mortal bodies. This is one of the things that always astonished me about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. We're told that when Jesus was raised again on the first day of the week, he appeared to several people. In fact, over the course of the next several weeks, he appeared to over 500 people one time. But on that first day and the days following, he appeared to a number of people, particularly those closest to him, those who had spent time with him, those who knew him intimately. But did you ever notice that every time Jesus appeared, and the scripture is very clear, he had a physical body because people had an opportunity to touch it, to see it. Thomas had an opportunity to explore the wounds. But did you ever notice that every time Jesus Christ appeared to somebody, they failed to recognize him? Remember the story of Mary Magdalene? 
When she went back to the tomb, when everybody was gone, and she was there weeping, wondering what in the world had happened to the body of Jesus, and we're told that the Lord appeared to her and asks her, why are you crying? And we're told she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the, the gardener. Until he said, Mary, when she heard that voice and heard him speak her name, she turned to him and she said, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher. Now, Mary knew Jesus very well. Her dedication to him was quite clear in the fact that she was going to the tomb on the first day of the week to anoint his dead body. One thing is very clear, she was not expecting to see him. And she didn't recognize him. Mary wasn't the only one. We're told that later that day, Jesus appeared to two other disciples on their way out of Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. And as they were making their way to Emmaus, Jesus suddenly appeared there alongside the road and began to walk with them. For several miles is what the text says. And they failed to recognize him. He said, well, you all look so downcast, so discouraged. What's the problem? And they turned to him incredulous. They said, have you not been to Jerusalem? Have you not heard what has happened there about Jesus, this prophet mighty in power? We thought that he was going to be the Savior, but it is the third day. And, and overmore, some of our, our, our women have come back to us and, and told us that the stone's been moved in the body and they've seen him. And, and we don't know what to make of all of this. And we're told that right then and there, Jesus began to open to them the scriptures. He walked with them for several miles and they didn't recognize him. And when they finally came to their lodging place and Jesus was determined to go on, they begged him to come in and have a meal with him. And it wasn't until Jesus broke the bread that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized him. There's a third example of this. We're told that after the resurrection, the disciples went back to Galilee. And they went out and they went fishing. I, I rather suspect this was Peter's idea. And the reason for that is Peter was kind of impatient, you know, sitting around waiting for Jesus to show up again. He wasn't particularly interested in doing that. He said, I don't know about the rest of you fellows, but I'm going fishing. And so they did. They went out on the boat and they went fishing. And early in the morning, a shadowy figure appeared there on the shore and cried out to them, fellows, did you catch anything? And the answer came back, nothing. We've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything. And the figure on the shore said, well, then throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And immediately, John turned to Peter and said, it's the Lord. Now, why is that? Because three years earlier, when Jesus called those men by the same Sea of Galilee, he asked them, have you caught anything? Peter said, nothing. And Jesus said, well, go out and throw your nets on the other side of the lake. The same words, but they didn't recognize him. But the minute that John said, it is the Lord, when he heard the voice, it is the Lord, we're told that Peter put on his clothes and dove into the water and swam to shore. I, I, I think that's, uh, you have to know that that account is true. Because if you were making up that account, you would say that Peter took off his clothes, wouldn't you? I mean, who jumps into the water with their clothes on? Peter wasn't thinking, you see. He was so excited at the prospect of meeting the Lord again that he put on his clothes and he dove into the water. 
But the point is that we're, it's made very clear in the scriptures, it was the same Jesus. He still had the wounds. He still had the nail prints in his hand. He said to Thomas, come, take your finger, put it in the nail prints, take your hand, put it in the side. It was the same Jesus Christ. That point is made very clear. In fact, some people said, well, it's a ghost. And Jesus said, is it a ghost? does a ghost eat? And he broke bread with the Emmaus disciples and he ate with them. He proved to them that it was him, that he was physically, bodily, back from the grave, and yet there was something different about him. Suddenly, Jesus no longer looked the same, and suddenly Jesus was able to do the things with a physical body that he had not been able to do up to that point. He was able to walk through barred doors. He was able to pass back and forth between heaven and earth. He was able to appear out of nothing. It was the same Jesus, and yet somehow the resurrection had changed him, hardly making him recognizable, giving him the ability to do things that up to that point he had never been able to do. And what I want you to understand, and what Paul wants us to understand this morning, is that that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you and to me. It can make us hardly recognizable. When you tap into that power, that resurrection power, let me tell you, it can make you hardly recognizable. It can so transform you, so change you, that even those closest to you will say, what in the world has happened? You may find that the ability to do things you were never able to do before, you suddenly have the ability to do them. And the things that you were never able to resist, you will suddenly discover, lo and behold, you have the power by the grace of God, to resist them. How many of you would like to tap into that kind of a power? <laughs> Paul says it's available to us, the power to change. Now, somebody might say, well, why should I want to change? I mean, we can't assume that everybody wants to change. Some people sort of feel that they're pretty good just the way they are. Why should I want to change? Well, because as you've heard me so many say so many times before, God has saved us from something. But he's also saved us for something. Paul has already made that point very clear. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be a saint? Oh, we've talked about this already. To be a saint doesn't mean to be a perfect person. It's, it's not the image of a plaster person up here or somebody that's a two-dimensional figure in stained glass windows. It's not somebody who's gone through a long process that they do in some branches of the church, this process of apotheosis by which you do great things and you achieve this coveted status of a saint. What is a saint? It means somebody who's been set apart. That's what the word saint means. It simply means set apart. When we sanctify something, we bless something, that's where the word comes from, saint, sanctify. When we sanctify something like the elements, we are taking ordinary bread, ordinary wine, and we are sanctifying them. We are setting them apart for a holy purpose. And that which was ordinary becomes what? Extraordinary. That which was bread becomes the body of Christ. That which was wine becomes what? The blood of Christ cup of salvation. What God does is he takes ordinary people and he sets them apart for extraordinary purposes. That's what it means to be a saint. And if you are a Christian, you need to understand that is what God 
has set you apart for. You may think that you've been set apart for a particular profession. That's wonderful. Perhaps you have. But as a Christian, God has set you apart for an even greater vocation, an even greater calling, and that is to what? To represent Him. It is a call to be holy. You know what the word Christian means? Not a trick question. You probably know the answer and you're just afraid to say it. What does the word Christian mean? Mm -hmm. Somebody said it. A little Christ. God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, what you're saying is that God has set me apart for a purpose to be a little Christ. Take a look in the mirror and ask yourself, how Christ-like am I? In terms of where I go, in terms of what I do, in terms of what are my priorities in life, how much do I measure up to Jesus Christ? And then ask yourself this question, how well am I doing? How many of you think you look pretty much like Jesus Christ today? That's nervous laughter out there. But that's what we've been set apart for. That's what you've been set apart to be. That is a holy calling. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The other great Apostle Peter put it this way in his first epistle. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and following. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed. He uses exactly the same language that Paul does in Romans. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If Christ was holy and you are a little Christ, that means that you have been called to holiness. That is why it is necessary for us to tap into this power, because that's what we're called to be. We are called to be holy. We are called to be different, not to be conformed to the pattern of this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In the years following the uh, Civil War, there were two small colleges in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, in Rockbridge County, Virginia, that were struggling. They barely had enough students to stay alive. Uh, the one advantage that one of them had was that they got a new president immediately following the war. First college was known as Washington College. It's now Washington and Lee University today. And after his surrender at Appomattox, Robert E. Lee needed to be gainfully employed, and he was invited to come to Rockbridge County, Virginia, and become the president of this small, struggling school. 
Washington College. It had a very small student body, in large measure because so many of its students had gone off and died in the war. If you've ever been to Washington Lee University, you know that that little college adjoins the campus of another institution for higher learning. In fact, you walk right from one end to the other, from Washington College to the Virginia Military Institute. Now, in those years after the war, because they had such small student bodies, both of those schools, in fact, VMI had been burned in 1864 by federal troops in the valley, and they were just rebuilding, because they had such a small student body, every year they would have a joint commencement ceremony, joint graduation. And all the students and the faculty, almost every single one of them having been a veteran, either an officer or in the ranks, they would march behind a brass band up the hill where they would have this joint commencement ceremony, VMI and WNL, just Washington College at the time. Everybody in perfect step, except for the president of Washington College. Robert E. Lee insisted on walking out of step with everybody else. Now, finally, somebody mustered the courage to go up and ask him, why? I mean, he was a West Point graduate. He'd graduated second in his class at West Point. He was regarded as the greatest soldier of the age, a brilliant strategist. A man who said even in his later years, there he is in 1870, the year of his death, stood erect like an arrow. And yet when it came to everybody else marching in step, he didn't march in step. Somebody asked him why, and this is what Robert E. Lee said. He said, because I am a soldier no more. That was my former life. I walk out of step with that world. That's a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian, you see. To be a Christian is to walk out of step with the world. Not in lockstep with the culture, but out of step with the world. Are you walking out of step with the world? Are you living up to your high calling? Are you being Christ-like? Because if Jesus did anything, he walked out of step with the world, didn't he? On the night of the Last Supper, we're told that Jesus got down on his hands and knees and he went to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter at least recognized that that was inappropriate. He said, no, I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, no, this is the way it must be. Then Peter says, well, then wash all of me. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If you're going to be Christ-like, that means you have to be a servant. How are you doing? That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be Christ-like. It means to walk out of step with the world. And that is not an easy thing. The Bible says that you and I struggle against three enemies. Sometimes, one at a time, most of the time, all at once. And what are those three enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we are going to be 
Christ-like, we have to walk out of step with those three things. First, walk out of step with the world. Now, the Greek word for world is cosmos, from which we get the term cosmology or cosmonaut. But whenever you hear the world in the New Testament, what it really means is the culture. It means the culture. We are to walk out of step with our culture. Now just ask yourself, what are the things that characterize 21st century American culture? I want to suggest to you there are three things. I call them the six, or excuse me, six things. The six isms. These isms characterize our culture, and you and I are expected to walk out of step with them. So take a look at your own life as I go through these and ask yourself, am I walking in step with this ism, or am I walking out of step with this ism? What's the first ism? Relativism. Uh, you may recall that when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate began to interrogate Jesus, asking him all kinds of questions. And at one point, he asked Jesus if he was the king. And uh, Jesus responded, you say so. And the subject of truth came up in their conversation. And Pilate, this, this powerful Roman governor, turns to Jesus and says, what is truth? What is, what is truth? You, you sit here and you, you talk about truth. Here you are bound, hand and foot, about to be led away to be crucified. I alone have power to release you or to free you. And you want to talk about truth? What is truth? Well, let me tell you something. The world is asking the same question, isn't it? What is truth? You have your truth. He has his truth. She has her truth. And I have my truth. And the most important thing is you tell your truth. Isn't that what Oprah Winfrey says? The most important thing that any individual can do is tell your truth. See, truth in our culture is a subjective category, not an objective reality. And yet over and against that stands Jesus Christ, who in John chapter 14 says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I am the only way to the Father. And people say, well, that's offensive. I, I don't particularly like that. And so you get labeled as what? A bigot. But that's where our world is. What is truth? There's no such thing as ultimate truth. There are no ad absolute categories of truth, beauty, of right and wrong. It all depends upon the what? The circumstances. Depends upon your situation. It depends upon what works for you. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to walk out of step with that world. We are to stand up and say there are some things that are always right no matter what the circumstances, and there are some things that are always wrong no matter what the circumstances. And let me tell you, you stand up and you do that sort of thing in the world today, and people are going to be offended, and you obviously are going to be unpopular. But to walk out of step with the world means you walk out of step with that ism. What's the second ism? Multiculturalism. Some of you who have taught high school understand there's been a dramatic change that has taken place 
in American education over the course of the past 50 years. Those of you in older generation, how many of you remember classes on American history? Nobody from my age forward got a class on American history. We got something called social studies where you studied all societies. Why? Because you cannot hold to the idea that some cultures are superior to other cultures. All cultures have value and significance, and when all is said and done, all cultures are basically equal. Multiculturalism. Now, we put it in terms of tolerance today. But Jesus made it very clear, if there is a way, a truth, a life, then those cultures that embrace the gospel are obviously what? Superior to other cultures. It's as simple as that. Now that's not to say that the people within those cultures have no value and significance. Jesus Christ came to die for them all. But we cannot say as Christian people that all cultures are equal. In fact, we have to stand against that sort of thing. In England, there's been a great attempt in some quarters to actually introduce Sharia law as part of British common law. And it's been met with great resistance by traditional British people. Why? Because they recognize that these two cultures are in conflict with each other. British law defends and protects the rights of women. Sharia law does just the opposite. Are we willing to stand up in a world like ours where you're oftentimes labeled again as a bigot, as intolerant, and say, no, we believe that there are some ways, some cultures that are superior to others? It's not because people are superior to others. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has infused and transformed those societies, is superior to others. But if you think about just this too, that's what we're told, isn't it, in our culture? There's no such thing as truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and everybody's culture, everybody's beliefs, ah, they're all the same. Thirdism characterizing our culture is secularism. It comes from the Latin secularis. It basically means worldly. For our purposes today, it simply means the belief that this world, this life, is all there is. When the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, he encountered a group of philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, two groups in fact, and he found them both to be very depressing because they both believed that this life was all there is. The Greeks believed that history was cyclical, uh, summer turned into autumn, autumn turned into winter, winter turned into spring, spring turned back into summer again, and that's the way history was. History had no rhyme, no purpose, no direction. It was a riderless chariot. Nobody was there at the helm, holding on, directing things. And so they believed that the best thing you could do was live for today. And the Epicureans believed that you eat, drink, and be merry today because, well, tomorrow you die. The Stoics were a little more noble. They felt that, yes, history has no purpose, life has no purpose, but you just sort of have to take it with a stiff upper lip. You know what, the Stoics and the Epicureans are still around today. Still living as though this life is really all there is. How many of you remember the old series that Carl Sagan used to do on um, PBS? Was it Nature or whatever it was? And he would always end it with something that sounded almost like a benediction at the end. The universe is all there is, ever was, or ever shall be. 
Doesn't that sound just like something out of the prayer book? Jesus Christ, who was and is and evermore shall be. But you see what Carl Sagan was saying, in not so subliminal a way, is that this world is all there is. So you folks might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Life's a beach, and tomorrow you die. And if you want to be a little more noble, because Charlestonians are more noble, we know that, stiff upper lip. Well, how encouraging is that? But you know, many people live that way. Oh, they may say that they believe in heaven. Even many Christians, unfortunately, live that way. They may say that there's a heaven, but they're living as though today's the only thing that counts. Spending all of our money on expensive cars, on big houses, on expensive clothes, on pleasure, on trips, with no thought to the needs of others. Now you see, that's secularism. Tell me, are you walking out of step with that world? Humanism. By humanism here, we're not talking about the good form of humanism that has a concern for one's fellow human being. We're talking about philosophical humanism. Narcissism, the belief that I am the most important thing in the world. I call this a Facebook society. Now, I'm on Facebook, so don't take offense. But isn't that an interesting name? Facebook. And what do we do? We post all kinds of pictures. I, I got to tell you, don't take offense at this. I don't care what you had for lunch. <laughs> you, know, you ever see people, they, they're posting their pictures of their lunch. And why do they do that? Because they think that their lunch is so important that everybody else wants to see it. Now you tell me there's not something that has gone wrong with a culture like that. That is a culture that has turned in on itself. It's all about me. You ought to see what I'm doing. You ought to be interested in what I'm doing. Even though I'm not even going to look at your post. And, and here's the sad part. We oftentimes determine our worth or our value by the number of likes that we get on our pictures, don't we? See, that's a culture that has turned in on itself, thinking of self over and against what? Others. Are you walking out of step with that world? I'm going to go home today and find that 50 people unfriended me on Facebook. <laughs> I know it. Materialism. This is a big one for 21st century Americans. Materialism, what is this? This is the belief that he who dies with the most toys wins. Somebody once said, boys never change. The toys just get bigger. It's true, isn't it? And you, you quickly discover at some point in your life it really doesn't matter. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, the, 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 the sad tragedy is we spend the first 60 years of our life acquiring stuff. And then the last 10 years of our life trying to get rid of it because the kids don't want the silver. They don't want to polish it. They don't want the crystal. They don't want all of that stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting to you that these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. But when you make that your life's ambition, that that is the measure of a person's worth, how much money or stuff they have, then how does that look compared to Jesus Christ? who said that the Son of Man did not even have a place to lay his head. 
He said, foxes have holes, birds of the nest have their heirs, but the, have their nests, but the Son of Man has not even a place to lay his head. Are you walking out of step with that ism? Pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism is the belief that the ends justify the means. Doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you get there. A few years ago, when Al Gore was running for president against George Bush, the news had this big thing about how Al Gore didn't appear to be very affectionate toward his wife. I don't remember how many of you remember that sort of thing. And they made a big production out of this. Does he really love his wife? He doesn't show her any public affection, and all this, that, and the other thing. And finally, the, the, the Democrats decided that what Al Gore needed to do was to show his wife some affection in public. And so he kissed her. And it was all over the news. I remember this. It was all over the news. He kissed her. He kissed her. But then, of course, people began to say, yeah, but it was contrived. We know he really didn't mean it. And so they started interviewing people. I mean, this is the news. They started interviewing somebody, and they asked this woman. They said, well, what did you think? And she said, oh, I know it was contrived. She said, I know it was made up. I know it was for political purposes. But I got to tell you, it worked for me. It worked for me. That's the way we think, isn't it? Doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you get there. The ends justify the means. But let me tell you something. In Christianity, it's the exact opposite. The means are just as important as the end. You see, to be a Christian means to walk out of step with that world. How are you doing? And if you're saying to yourself, well, I'll be honest with you, I'm not doing so great. That, 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 that materialism, that's me. That, that relativism, that, that's me. That, that, that secularism, even if it's not a philosophical secularism, but a practical secularism, you may believe that there's a life to come, but you're living as though this life is the only thing there is. If you're thinking to yourself, well, that's me, how many of you would like to be better? How many of you would like to be more Christ-like? How many of you would like to learn how to walk out of step with that world. Come back next week and we'll continue to explore this subject and how you can tap in to that resurrection power that can make you hardly recognizable to those around you, that can give you the grace and the ability to do things you were not able to do and the ability to resist things you were not able to resist. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs>